Content warning. Check the show notes for more information. It's July 11th, 1977, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. If you spent as much of your teenage years reading X-rated fanfiction as I did, <laughs> a poem which graphically describes a Roman centurion committing sex acts with the lifeless body of Jesus Christ probably doesn't faze you. In fact, you might be thinking, oh, I think I read one like that once. <laughs> but the jury which passed its verdict on the love that dares speak its name today in history in 1977 were not of the same opinion, finding the publishers of the poem guilty in what would become Britain's last ever blasphemy conviction. And the poem actually kicks off with a pretty smutty joke. It starts... As they took him from the cross, I, the centurion, took him in my arms, the tough, lean body of a man no longer young, beardless, breathless, but well hung, (laughs) which is, um, you know, a fairly cheeky way to start off and then it carries on in that same vein. Oh, I see. Well hung because Jesus had been crucified but also in this fantasy, he is well endowed. Exactly. I hadn't even got that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's more sophisticated than I thought. I mean, the thing is, you can see why they had problems defending this in court because the art of it is low-key, right? Mm. I mean, there's some pretty saucy language in it and some pretty choice uh, scenes depicted. I mean, uh, Rebecca was dancing around this, but, you know... It's about someone humping the corpse of the Messiah. (laughs) (laughs) And and there's only really anything even consensual when in the moment of the resurrection, just to uh, make it offensive as well, Christ joins in. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an it's an odd poem tonally. You know, sometimes it seems to be striving for something a little bit deeper, more emotionally resonant. But then, you know, Foxy Judas cannot be intended to be taken too seriously. Literally, Foxy Judas is in the poem. <laughs> Kirkup, James Kirkup, the author, later called it not aesthetically a successful work and was kind of mortified by the attention it garnered. You know, he's fifty eight years old by this point. He'd been a you know professional poet his whole life. He'd held a series of academic posts, but he was, yes, he was he professor, was, wasn't he? Professor James Kirkup, and he was very prolific and I think this is what let him down you know he published a lot of poetry in his lifetime and this was just something it it feels like it was something he just scribbled off and sent to gay news for publication in that he was not thinking this is one of his great works he was just a very very prolific author and he just dashed this one off and probably didn't expect to hear anything about it ever again it does end with this fairly beautiful statement of acceptance after you've got through all the smart it ends he rose from sleep at dawn and showed himself to me before all others I mean there's still a bit of smut in that, and took me to him with the love that now and forever dares to speak its name. You know, this is very much about a longing for not just the acceptance of, you know, this particular gay centurion and the love of a particular man, but God, you know, all men. This is the idea that it seems the poem is trying to convey. Well, it may be said that this is a love poem. It is not. It is a poem about buggery, said the prosecuting counsel John Smith, in the trial that led up to the verdict on this day because it ended up in court because of a private prosecution for blasphemous libel. In the dock was Gay News for having published it and Dennis Lemon, who was the editor. And who was on the other side of this libel action? Well, only previous star of Today in History with the Retrospectors, Mary Whitehouse. (laughs) Um, Now, you might recall, Mary Whitehouse was kind of a force of nature at this point. 
She'd already been credited for the departure of the Director General Sir Hugh Green from the BBC and the creation of a viewer and listener point of contact between audience and broadcasters being part of the regulatory landscape in the UK by this point. So she'd had some real victories under her belt. But she also had this weird history of doing slightly ridiculous things, trying to get my dingaling banned, mm. campaigning against broadcasters showing footage from Vietnam. You know, and then there's this, which is sort of exactly I feel on that Venn diagram. I mean, it is blasphemous. You can see why you'd be offended. But also, it's a poem in the gay news. Like, really? Are you going to take this to court? Well, I mean, blasphemy was on Mary Whitehouse's radar, particularly at this moment. She had recently tried to drum up a storm accusing the BBC of blasphemy about an episode of Till Death Do Us Part, which had a joke about the virgin birth. Mm. You know, but by that point, it was 1976, the British public needed something a bit juicier to get excited about, something precisely like this. Now, Gay News had about 20,000 subscribers. Unsurprisingly, Mary Whitehouse was not among them. <laughs> but what happened was, because she had been such a figurehead, she was the natural person that if you did come across saying that offended you, you might send it to Mary Whitehouse. You know, she was the public face of this. And in November, you know, several months after it appeared in Gay News, a copy was delivered to her home from an anonymous informant with a note enclosed directing her attention to the offending poem. Dear Mrs. Whitehouse, I am a self-hating homosexual. Please put <laughs> enclosed <laughs> this magazine. Yeah. And look, blasphemous libel was an offence both under common law and the 1697 Blasphemy Act. But, you know, <laughs> that date in itself gives you a sense of how out of date blasphemy was in practice by this this time. And in fact, the last time that a case was brought in the UK was in 1921, which was, you know, a good 50 years prior to this when a Mr. Gott was sentenced to nine months in prison for publishing a pamphlet that suggested that Christ looked like a clown as he entered Jerusalem, which you can see... I mean, why no one even have... sodomised his corpse in that oh, Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, immediately there was this uh, fund that was set up for people who thought that this was a bit anachronistic for this case to be being brought at all. It was called the Gay News Fighting Fund, started raising money to pay for the defence. They'd hired two people... John Mortimer QC, who is the creator of Rumpole of the Bailey, which was a fictional show about barristers doing exactly this sort of thing, and the defence counsel at the Oz conspiracy trial in 1971, Jeffrey Robertson QC. So, you know, two very high-flying lawyers who were brought in to defend this case. Yeah, and the trial began on the 4th of July. And from the off, it was clear that the judge, Alan King Hamilton, was not interested in entertaining literary or theological musings. He wasn't interested in Kirkup's authorial intent. He was clear that the only thing the jury was supposed to consider was whether or not the poem vilified Christ. So because they weren't allowed to bring literary or theological witnesses, as had been the case during the Lady Chatterley's Lover trial, which we talked about before, in this case, the only stardust, sort of literary stardust, that the defence was able to sprinkle over it was they had Margaret Drabble and Bernard Levin come in, kind of London literary figures, but they were there to speak to Lemon's good character as a man. But they weren't able to really defend the poem apart from on the grounds that you said. At the end, you get a sense that Jesus is offering salvation to homosexuals and that in itself makes it not blasphemous because it's an important part of the Christian message that Jesus loves everybody. And Robertson did such a good job of making that point that apparently even White House herself was moved in the courtroom um, by this concept that it's a poem about Jesus's salvation. But the bottom line is, it's also a poem in which someone gives him oral sex. Yeah. And you can't really say that that isn't blasphemous. If you're not going to defend it on a literary basis, then if you're the jury and the judge has made it very clear, is this blasphemous or not? 
I mean, it just obviously is, isn't it? Yeah, well, certainly that was the feeling of the jury. After the six-day trial came to an end, uh, it wasn't a unanimous verdict, actually. The, it was split 10 to 2, where they decided that both the Gay News Limited and also Lemon were guilty of blasphemy. Interestingly, White House said after the case came to an end, she said, I'm rejoicing because I saw the possibility of our Lord being vilified. Now it's been shown that it won't be. So she regarded this really as the start of what sounds like a potential broader campaign against blasphemy in general. The funny thing was that it was a national news story, but at the same time, the average person would have struggled to form their own opinion because Judge King Hamilton had ordered that the text not be published by court reporters in their accounts of the case. Even the jury and press were given handouts to read. So, yeah, he really made no bones about his views. In fact, actually, after the verdict, he commented that the pendulum of public opinion was beginning to sway back to a more healthy climate. You know, it was really obvious that this was about personal dislike for the poem, really, rather than legal points. And ended up with Dennis Lemon being sentenced to nine months suspended imprisonment and fined £500, gay news fined £1,000. I mean, I know we're talking about 70s money, but that's still not that much, is it, for something that goes to the Old Bailey? But that threat of prison was very real. And of course, he had to pay Mary Whitehouse's costs as well. And those were quite significant, £7,763, which were ordered to be paid four-fifths by Gay News Limited and one-fifth by Lemon personally. There is something poetic about the fact that the title, you know, The Love That Dare Speak Its Name, is a play on the phrase The Love That Dare Not Speak Its Name, which mm. is from the poem Two Loves, written famously by Oscar Wilde's lover, Lord Alfred Douglas. Yeah, but even and- that's almost blasphemous, isn't it? You don't take Wilde's work and do this with it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> They've got a genuine gay icon there. I mean, I just feel like, you know, it's a smutty poem. Let's be honest. <laughs> but of all the poems that could have been prosecuted for blasphemy in 1977, I think it is something, you know, eerie and cool about the fact that it is this one that mm. references the poem that was brought up during Wilde's own gross indecency trial. You know, he was asked to define what is the love that dare not speak its name. And he, you know, kind of a, tailoring it to the Victorian court, he defined it as being a noble affection between an older intellectual man and a young mentee, the kind found in ancient Greece, and, as he said, between Jonathan and David in the Bible. So once again, bringing in this biblical homoeroticism that may not have gone down very well. You know, but he said but to 19th century minds, it was so misunderstood that it had become taboo. And it would obviously was still taboo to some extent in the 70s. Yeah, but still critically a form of love where no one involved is dead. You know, that does seem like (laughs) a slight difference in this case. Tomorrow. The mining companies owned the hospital, the department store, the library. They owned the town newspaper. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors.